God, help us to be attentive to you and to your word uh, as we uh, look, as we read, as we listen. Uh, show us things we haven't seen before. Uh, shape us, mold us in our minds, in our hearts, in our spirits, in our affections, in our wants, in our desires, in our inclinations. May we always be inclined to you and to your will and to your way. Help us to remain uh, worshipful and inclined to you in that way as we read, as we listen. Give us ears uh, that are good to hear and hearts that are good soil. I pray and ask that as my word is true to your word, that it be taken to heart. If my words stray in any way, shape or form from your word, may they be passed over, forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, beginning at verse 14 this morning. Listen closely. This is God's word. King Herod heard about this. This we'll talk about in a moment. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet or a birthday for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with a request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her, so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to, and this is why we send the kids off to power station. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And the this, the this, about which King Herod was beginning to hear, as noted back in 14, verse 14, where we started this morning, was about Jesus' disciples being sent, Jesus' disciples going out, Jesus' disciples preaching repentance. They're driving out demons. They're anointing people with oil and being involved in people's healing. 
this. Through the grapevine and through Herod's sources, he was hearing more and more about someone named Jesus and also about this Jesus' disciples, his students, his apprentices. But who was this Jesus? Jesus being a fairly common name at that time. Who was this Jesus? You may remember at the beginning of this chapter, at the beginning of chapter 6 in Mark's gospel, we read about Jesus' visit to his hometown, Nazareth. And the questions that the people there asked about Jesus. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What, what's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon aren't his sisters among us. Who is this guy? And the interesting thing is that though Jesus' hometown people and King Herod had very different perspectives toward Jesus, given what they each knew about him and acknowledging that neither was open to Jesus being Messiah's son of God, as Mark asserts in the very first verse you remember of his gospel as his sort of thesis statement, Herod may have actually been a little bit closer to the truth and to understanding who Jesus was than Jesus' hometown people at that time. There were three common ideas about who Jesus was at this moment in history. Three fairly common guesses. First, that he was John the Baptist, back from the dead, maybe. Had a lot in common with John. Second, he was Elijah who had been whisked up to the heavens back in the Old Testament and so had never died and so maybe was back, returned, present again, living. Third, a prophet from long ago, one of Israel's ancient prophets. God had not spoken to the Jewish people explicitly through a recognized prophet in some 400 years. This is the kind of person that John was, that Jesus was, and that John was. And Herod leaned toward option number one, saying in verse 16, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Thinking this is, must be who Jesus is. That same sort of power following. And then starting at verse 17, Mark does this flashback that connects what Mark wrote about John the Baptist in chapter one. But before we go there, let's talk about the cast of the scene that we just read about, starting with Herod's father, who is Herod the Great, the first Herod. So there, are, there was Herod the Great, and then there are at least four other Herods mentioned in the New Testament, which is why all of the Herods get confusing in our minds. There are many Herods roaming around. First, there's Herod the Great, and he was the Herod that we read about in the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel, the one who was afraid of, the one that the Magi from the East spoke of, who would be crowned king of the Jews. And so he has all of the children in Bethlehem and in that region, all of the Jewish little boys, two years old and younger, killed. That's Herod the Great. When Herod the Great dies, he has, by that time, had 10 wives and many offspring. They broke up his kingdom, so to speak, but he was installed by the Roman government and wasn't a real autonomous king, but nevertheless, they broke up his kingdom into four tetrarchs or four regions that were ruled over by three of his many sons and one of his daughters. One of his sons is this king, Herod, 
that we read about in chapter 6, known as Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas rules over a certain area and has, to some degree, power given to him by Rome. He can't really give away part of his kingdom, as he implies Rome wouldn't let him. And so Mark almost mockingly calls him king. This King Herod had divorced his first wife, specifically in order to marry Herodias, who was a daughter of one of Antipas. This is where it gets complicated. This Herod, known as Antipas, had divorced his first wife, specifically in order to marry Herodias, who was a daughter of one of Antipas's older half-brothers, Herod Aristobulus, who had been the wife of one of this Herod's older half-brothers, Philip, which obviously angered both Herod's, Antipas's first wife, that she gets cast to the side, and Herod's half-brother, Philip, also known as Herod I. So it's a very complex family tree. To add to that, Herodias is the daughter of one of Herod Antipas's older half-brothers, and so it's like the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> With all the intrigue and drama, Herodias is unhappy. And John speaks out against Herodias and Herod Antipas. They have not only defiled one another and their family and the Jewish people, they have clearly and blatantly violated Mosaic law from Leviticus. But this King Herod Antipas didn't care much about such things. He did what he wanted to do, a lot like his father, Herod the Great, and he could be just as ruthless. Similarly, his new wife, Herodias, the daughter of one of Herod Antipas' older half-brothers and the former wife of another of his half-brothers was just as cold-blooded and self-serving, and neither of them, Herod Antipas or Herodias, appreciated John the Baptist's public rebuke, his public condemnation of their actions and their marriage. But that is what John did. He spoke up. He got underneath people's skin. He said the things that people didn't want him to say. He spoke truth. And so Herodias wanted John the Baptist dead. King Herod was not so determined in that. Mark tells us that Herod Antipas found John intriguing, and Antipas subtly respected John the Baptist as an upright person, as a holy man. And to some degree, he feared John and John's righteousness. But then the day came, King Herod throws a party that it looks like in Greek was probably a birthday party for himself. And all of the most important men, men's Bible study, all of the most important men were there. The religious leaders, the military leaders, the political leaders, the social, the economic, the business leaders, all of the most important men from Galilee are invited to this party. And they are a party in a way. And Herodias gets an idea. She wasn't at the party. She hasn't been invited to the party. She's somewhere else in the palace. She knows it's going on. And she's always scheming for her own benefit. And so she tells her daughter, Salome, who again is King Herod's stepdaughter now, to go in and dance for the men. Send in the young woman to dance for the old men. And the reader can only imagine what sort of lurid dance that might have been. And King Herod and his Friends, associates, fellow men are so pleased and delighted and impressed at her dance and her dancing 
that King Herod shouts out, I'll give you anything you want, young woman. You have so pleased and delighted us. And so she returns to her mother, who she has been sent to as an agent, as a mother who just sort of gives over her daughter like a sex trafficker. She says, what shall I ask for? And Herodias has no question in her mind. She knows what she's going to ask for. I want John the Baptist's head. And so Salome returns, says John the Baptist's head. You can see how now Herod Antipas is in a bind. He's made these public oaths. He's stood up. He's declared these great things. He can't go back on it. All of his friends, all of the power people are watching. And so he says, go ahead, do it. And a prisoner goes off and kills John the Baptist and brings back his head, delivering it to Herod and then to Salome and then to Herodias on a platter. And John the Baptist's disciples went and got John's body, quote, and laid it in a tomb. And all of this was a flashback by Mark. It's the only part of his gospel that isn't chronological. It's the only part that isn't chronological. Really odd, unique. And in this flashback, Mark is very intentionally doing at least a couple of things. First, Mark paints John the Baptist as not only the forerunner of Jesus, which is how we think of him. The one who came to pave the way, to lower the mountaintops, to raise the valleys, to smooth out the roads, to prepare the way for the Lord. But he's not only forerunner of Jesus, he is also one for Mark who foreshadows Jesus. Unjustly condemned by a powerful but weak king who is easily swayed by the people around him to do what he really doesn't want to do. Foreshadowing Jesus' own fate. He was killed ruthlessly for speaking the truth, which, we, which he held to unswervingly. And he was laid in a tomb. In fact, this passage can be seen as Mark's first passion narrative. Passion meaning coming from the Latin word suffering. Mark's first passion narrative that foreshadows his second and greater passion narrative, that of Jesus. Jesus suffering. John suffers. Jesus suffers. That's the first thing. But then there's this second thing that may even be the greater and stronger point here for Mark. A handful of times in Mark's gospel, he creates and uses what have been called literary sandwiches. We've talked about those a little bit before. He places in the middle of a narrative a completely different and seemingly unrelated story. The intention of which is that that larger story that now frames the inserted story be interpreted by the inserted story just as, for example, back in chapter 5, Jesus' healing of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years added meaning and helped to to highlight and illuminate Jesus' encounter with the synagogue ruler Jairus and Jesus healing Jairus' 12-year-old daughter, you may remember. So also Mark intends that John's experience at the hands of Herod and Tippus shape and provide insight into the story into which Mark inserts it. The first part of which we read and talked about last Sunday, Jesus sending out his 12 disciples to minister with only a staff and with sandals, no bag, no money, no second shirt, no extra clothes, no provisions. The last line of which 
we read last week, you may remember, goes like this. Jesus went out, Jesus' disciples went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And then the backside of the sandwich, the other piece of bread, the other bookend, which we have read this morning, verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Jesus' disciples went out and the apostles, same people, apostle just means sent ones, gathered around, they went out and they returned. Jesus sends them out, verse 12, verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And do you see the brackets? Do you see the sandwich? Do you see the bigger story that Mark inserts into the sort of shorter story in order to illuminate the brackets or the bigger story. And instead of giving his readers details about the disciples' mission experiences, Mark tells us about John the Baptist as a way of telling his readers and other disciples and future followers of Jesus what they might expect. When being sent out by Jesus, when going out as Jesus' apprentices, when living in Jesus' name. (sighs) Today we might say that John the Baptist spoke truth to power. One commentator has put it like this. Like the courageous prophets before him, John understood that the proclamation of God's word included Moral responsibility. There were no sacred cows in John's herds. He did not check the polls before speaking and acting. He protected no self, no special interest, nor did he predicate what he said and did on chances of success. John's was a costly courage, which brings to mind what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called costly discipleship. And with this sandwich, Mark inseparably ties together mission, which again is Latin for being sent or going out, mission and martyrdom. Discipleship and death. Mark inseparably ties together mission and martyrdom, discipleship and death. And this probably isn't what most church-going or Christian people bargained for, not what they, we thought we were signing up for, not what anyone is really seeking. These are the passages over which some people leave their church, literally. In search of a church that will skip over these passages, keep the message lighthearted, keep the message lighter. Christianity or the Christian life or following Jesus or the way of Jesus has been so assimilated by culture and misshaped by institutionalism and co-opted by commercialism that it's hard to see in the modern church that which Mark describes and envisions in and through his gospel which you remember does mean good news. It's good news. There's good news in it, though it's really hard. It can be at times and places and ways. So I wish I could spin this easily 
into a lovely, precious, sweet, happy, delightful, heartwarming, just warm message that you would just gravitate toward and that would just ooze and flow and fill our space with affection and love. And maybe that's possible. I would love for you to like me as someone who speaks loving, happy, pleasing, easy, embraceable messages. I don't know how to do that with this passage. Mark, this is what Mark gives us. This is what God gives us through Mark. But if we step back and reflect, there is maybe indirect good news in all of this. Jesus is different than all of the other rabbis of his time. Different than all of the other rabbis. Jesus went out to people and said, come and follow me. In the ancient world, people would choose their rabbi. They would hear about a rabbi, decide, I want to be that person's student. Jesus went out and said, come. Come to me. Come learn from me. Come be with me. But also different than all of the other rabbis of Jesus' time, Jesus sent people out. He sent out his students, his disciples, his apprentices, his followers. Other rabbis didn't do that, but Jesus did. Even knowing how insufficient, at times incompetent and incapable, young, not yet mature, still developing, Jesus' disciples were, even after years of training and preparation and learning and discipleship. Jesus sent out. He sent out his students with a mission, with a purpose, as his ambassadors to relay his message, to embody his message, even as imperfect as they were, because his message and his kingdom were and are that important. And that hasn't changed. It's still just as important today. I look around, I read the news with you, and think, what does the world need It needs gospel. It needs a kingdom with a king who is good, who is loving, who is pure, who is just, who is righteous, who is holy, who is humble, who has mercy, who is tender, who understands, who has walked the path that we walk. The world doesn't need a king who lives in an ivory tower or a gold and diamond palace, but one who has walked the roads that we have walked and understands and sympathizes and who would dare suffer in our place. The world needs that kind of king and that kind of kingdom. The world's survival depends on it. And so God still sends his people as fallible as they, we, may be and are, as scared as we may be. I saw something yesterday on social media that just sort of caught my eye, stuck with me. Jesus did not say that the whole world should go to church. But Jesus did say that the church should go to the whole world. Jesus didn't say that the whole world should go to church. But Jesus did say that the church should go to the whole world. We in centuries of practice and tradition have made the Christian faith into a static community. 
the purpose of which is, many people think or assume, to comfort people, to please people, to provide spiritual and religious goods and services. But Jesus didn't say that. He didn't just say come. He always also said go, and the going isn't easy. But the going is always good. It is good for the world. It is good for the goer. It is good for the church. Risky, maybe. Yes. And yet, in there, in all of that, in the gospel, there is good news. As hard as it may be sometimes to get to it. In the suffering, there is life. In the death, there is life. In the struggle... And out of the struggle comes life and abundance and healing and hope and a relationship and restoration and reconciliation and goodness and kingdom. Is Christianity hard or easy? I thought to myself as I began to wrestle with this passage. Is Christianity in the way of Jesus hard or easy? And the answer is yes. Yes. But there is in it good news. And there is in it life. And I thought that this was a particularly pertinent passage for us today as Walter alluded to in his praying. On Thursday evening, we heard the statements of faith of a number of young people just having finished the confirmation class process, several of whom will be baptized this afternoon. And on Thursday evening here on this platform, we talked about, among other things, and they talked about baptism. And one of the ways that we understand baptism is joining Jesus in being buried with him, which involves suffering. That we might also be raised to new life with him. As we die with him, as we identify with him in his crucifixion, we also are blessed with not only identifying with him, but also being with him in his resurrection. That is good news and maybe the ultimate good news. And so as we gather around this table, which in many ways was a table of suffering, it is also representative of and embodies the hope that we have of freedom and of rejoicing, and of life, and of hope, and of peace, and of shalom. Jesus said, truly I tell you, when a kernel of wheat falls to the ground, it dies. But when it dies, it produces many seeds. And such is the way of Jesus' kingdom. Out of death, out of suffering, comes life and life abundantly. May that be ours as we, with the courage of John, dare to follow Jesus, though it may involve suffering. Let us pray. God, in these moments, uh, help us to be open to you. 
open hearts and open minds, acknowledging who we are, our attitudes, our dispositions, our fears, our worries, our concerns, our reluctance, our heavy feet, our anxieties at times, our questions and our doubts, even about you and your word and your way and your will sometimes. We acknowledge all of this and ask that you would help us in it, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would fill us with your grace, that you would pour out your spirit, that you would give us courage, that we would be able to, by your grace, accept your forgiveness and live in the joyful freedom of Jesus and do so obediently. We want to see, as we pray, your kingdom come. In our midst, in our hearts, in our households, in our relationships, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, among our friends, in the church, outside the church, in the world, in India, in Afghanistan, in Ethiopia, in Guatemala, in Honduras, in Colombia, where there are parties, where there is suffering, we want to see your kingdom come. Help us to be joyfully available to being sent as you would send us, as your disciples, as your apostles, as your ambassadors as agents of love and agents of a kingdom. We confess our desperate need for you, a savior. Not an earthly king, but a heavenly king. We honor you with gratitude and thanksgiving. Amen.